Our first reading comes to us this morning from Isaiah, chapter 53, and verses 1 to 12. So Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 12. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we were considered we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. The second Bible reading comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 39. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad 
and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who is far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, St. Matt's. Uh, my name's Andrew Vella. I help oversee the life group ministry and the seniors ministry here at church. And this term, we're looking at the foundational beliefs of the church, of what they've held to throughout all these years. We're going through the Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest creeds that Christians have said. And today... We're talking about suffering and death. And no one wants to talk about that. Death is the great enemy that shall not be named in our society. We have world lockdowns trying to stop death. We get uncomfortable when we hear that someone has died. In 2003, in a Time magazine, Google said it's okay, they're going to solve the problem of death. It's a thing of fantasy, isn't it? Uh, drinking from the fountain of youth. In Indiana Jones, if you drink from the grail, you'll live forever. Peter Pan and his lost boys, they don't grow old. No, we, we try, society tells us to make a life for ourselves, to earn a living, to sit in living rooms and to not think about how it's all going to end. And death 
doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care how rich or socially well-adjusted you are. Even though we don't talk about death, it's inescapable. It can come quickly, quietly, painfully. And the question today is, how will you cope when your time comes? So far in our series of the Apostles' Creed, we've looked at how God is the Father Almighty, creator over everything, and that Jesus, the Son of God, came to us as a human to save humanity. And today, we'll see how Jesus lives up to his name as Savior. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you we can gather. Please help me to speak clearly from your word. I pray, Lord, with the help of your Holy Spirit, that you will give us confidence and hope in the face of the great enemy, death. Amen. Now, the real key to Christianity isn't a philosophy it's, or a way of life. It's about the person of Jesus. As Christians, we're not relying on some new perspective at looking at the world by trying to detach ourselves from suffering, or we're not trying this new routine of living. But we believe in real events that took place in the same real world that we live in. And in our passage today from Acts 2, it's the first Christian sermon. Here, the essentials are dealt with. The core issues are said in its most unrefined stage. Before any school of thought had a chance to object, we get this raw essentials of what it is. And we see what notes Peter hits upon in his talk. And in this speech, we see the central issue is Jesus. His death and his resurrection are hammered. We will see in this passage, in verses 22 and 24, a summary of Jesus. And then, following on, we'll look a little bit deeper about this expansion on how death didn't swallow up Jesus. But for now, verses 22 and 24, it says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Here we have a quick summary of the life of Jesus. And one of the objections I've read about the Apostles' Creed is that it misses the life of Jesus, right? We go from Mary to Pilate. What do we do with that? Well, we should remember that the creeds are walking a line between being comprehensive and being concise. And the creed doesn't predate the Gospels. It comes after it. The creed isn't a replacement of the Bible, but instead is dot points of the Bible. The Gospels existed before the creed, and Christians were reading it and learning from the Gospels all along. And in Peter's little summary of the life of Jesus, we see 
that Jesus being a miracle worker was a contentious issue, even for those who weren't Christians, but not for the reasons we might have today. Peter tells his Jewish audience that Jesus did miracles, wonders, and signs as they well know. The issue for the first few centuries wasn't if Jesus did miracles or even if miracles were possible at all, but the issue was by what power did Jesus do them? Even Jesus' opponents couldn't deny Jesus did healings and miracles. They had to come up with their own explanation. And Peter says these miracles show that Jesus was accredited by God. So Peter speaks boldly to them of who Jesus is and the miracles they know about, and then says that Jesus' death was part of God's plan, even though wicked people were involved. In the Apostles' Creed, Pontius Pilate is named as the guy who Jesus suffered under. There are only three humans mentioned in the creed. You have Jesus, Mary, and Pilate. Mary, last week we saw, was the Lord's servant. But Pilate, as Karl Barth says, enters the creed like a dog in a nice room. And it's a little strange that 2,000 years later, we're talking and remembering about some middle-tier Roman official. He was ruling over Israel, and as a career path in the Roman Empire, that wasn't that great. Israel was made up of all these folk with a different religion, And it would be strange if we went forward 2,000 years, 4022, and talked to those people about their history of our time now. Some people there probably have heard of Hitler. A couple might have heard of Martin Luther King Jr. But it would be strange if everyone there knew about Frank Brookin, who was the mayor of Camden in the 1990s. But having Pilate here links the event in history. It is real. It is true. Pilate walked the same earth that we do. It is a historical anchor. This should remind us that the gospel isn't an idea. It is a fact. And like like the reality of Pilate, so the suffering of Jesus is also real. Jesus really was crucified. He really did die. He really was buried. Yes, Jesus was God. But Jesus was also a person, and his human person, he did die. Last Easter was the first time that I went to that service of shadow things that St. Matt's put on. It's literally a dark service. The room is lit at the front here with only a few candles. And the service takes you through the gospel accounts of Jesus on the night of his crucifixion. And each candle represents a suffering that Jesus experienced. And at each stage, a candle is blown out and the room gets darker and darker. The service steps through Jesus' suffering from the agony he had in the garden to his arrest, betrayal, denial, Accusation, mockery, crucifixion, humiliation, death, and burial. And in the end, there is no light. Jesus is dead and buried, and we all head into the night in silence. It's a morbid service, 
But it's a good experience to sit and dwell on what Jesus went through that night. To our modern mind, the biggest thing about the cross would be the pain. I haven't seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. I'm like my mum who's seen this R-rated movie when I was a kid. I wasn't allowed to watch it. All right? But I hear in that movie that Jesus figures beat up for like two hours. At, when I went to the movies, some people couldn't finish their popcorn. It was too violent. What we might look, overlook on the crucifixion is that it also brought humiliation. In an honour-shame culture, to be condemned and publicly exposed and left to die was humiliating. You didn't talk about crucifixion in polite conversation. And the Romans wouldn't even subject their own citizens to this type of death. One early Christian, anti-Christian graffiti from the second century is of Alamenius worshipping his God. It's a mockery. It's a picture of a guy on a cross with a donkey's head. It was crazy that anyone in Roman culture would speak highly of someone who was crucified. It was unbelievable that they would even worship someone who went to death on the cross. The Jews also thought that anyone who was hung on a tree was accursed by God. The Quran, 500 years later, in chapter 4, verses 157 and 158, it says that Jesus didn't get crucified. Someone else took his place. Someone who looks like him took his place and died for Jesus. Islam can't handle the shame of such a death for someone so revered. But it is the cross that the Christians culturally appropriated to be not a symbol of shame, but one of salvation. With the cross, it's where our Saviour was humiliated and died. And so, Christ followers, we are also to take up our own cross, to live humbly lives, not for ourselves, but for Christ and others. The cross turned humility into a virtue. But that's not the only reason why it's so valued. What happened in particular on the cross with Jesus that's worth mentioning in the creed? Well, there's many ways we could answer this, especially coming out of the letter from the Romans. We could talk about justification and freedom and adoption. But in its simplest form, what Peter says in the first sermon in Acts 2 and in the Apostles' Creed, it simply says it's for the forgiveness of sins. As Peter said, there was no accident that Jesus, uh, as Peter says, this was no accident that Jesus died. He didn't get caught up in the political wheel and was crushed for opening his mouth at the wrong time. No, even though evil men were involved, this was still part of God's plan. On the cross, our sins were forgiven. Jesus paid our debt for all our wrongs to God. Jesus took our punishment for us. So because of him, we can be forgiven. This is huge, and we will spend another week later in this series looking at forgiveness. But for now, being forgiven is freeing. It can be life-changing. It would be like someone on death row in a prison suddenly being told that even though everyone knows you're guilty, the state has decided to forgive them, that they can now go free. 
That would be insane, but also dramatically life-changing for that prisoner. No longer in a cell waiting, awaiting death, no longer with any punishment from the state, they are deemed right in the eyes of the law. They are now free to interact with society again. And this is the good news, this life-changing news that Christians talk about all the time. It's what we remember at communion. This is the greatest message in all the world because through it we see the plans of God in saving people from destruction. Through it we see how much God loves us. Through it we see that there is hope for the future, even in the face of chronic and terminal illness, even in the face of disasters and rising COVID numbers and interest rates. Through this message, lives are changed and people experience love and peace in, six, in circumstances that don't offer love or peace. And so because of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. The wages of sin are death, and so to death Jesus went for us. He really did die. And then he was buried in a tomb. And that's unusual for cru crucified people to be buried in a tomb. Normally they would be tossed out somewhere away from the city and left to rot. So Peter's message takes us to the tomb. The creed goes from the womb to the tomb, with Mary and Pilate as witnesses along the way. But Jesus' identification with humans and his experience didn't stop at death. He went further to where the soul goes afterwards. The line descended to the dead in the Apostles' Creed is probably the most controversial line there is. It was added later, around the 4th century, and the meaning of it has been much debated. But this late addition to the creed isn't a late addition of belief. Arrhenius, who was two people removed from the apostles, said that Jesus went to the land of the dead to rescue and save the saints who had previously died. Now, I should be honest here at this point. For about the last 15 years, I never held to this. It was only around Easter this year that I have changed my position. I was quite opposed to the line. I didn't see its point or function or its biblical warrant. Didn't, didn't Jesus experience God's wrath on the cross? Wasn't that hell? Why did Jesus need to go to the underworld at all? What's with it? Now, I'd mostly been influenced by Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. His Systematic is a fine book. It's good. I hand it out to people. It's great. Um, but I disagree with him now on this point. Uh, in my ordination class, this book by Griffith Thomas, The Principles of Theology, just recently has changed my view on this. It was 90 bucks on the Play Store. It was $2 on Kindle. <laughs> if you disagree with either side, let's do that respectfully, and maybe in 15 years' time I might change my views again. But I have been wrestling for this line because I am seeking ordination in the Anglican Church, and of the 39 articles, the third one in its entirety says, as Christ died for us, he was buried, and so also it is to believe that he went down into hell. There doesn't seem to be much wiggle room there, so I've been wrestling to see, can I sign a statement that says this? And I think I can today. The Nicene Creed doesn't have this line, 
but the Athanasius Creed does. In fact, the Nicene Creed has the burial and not the descent, and the Athanasius Creed has the descent and not the burial. The Apostles' Creed has both. So those who want to ha- hold to the standard ecumenical positions of the Creed, they have to de- deal with the line that Jesus descended to the dead in two of the three creeds. In our Acts passage, Peter spends some time quoting Psalm 16 and then explaining it. He makes the point that Jesus was not abandoned to the realm of the dead. Now, whatever that means, I think it means more than just being buried. The creed already says Jesus was buried. I don't think they added an extra line for redundancy. Back then, the belief was when you died, people didn't go straight to heaven or hell. They went to somewhere else, awaiting final judgment. Instead, you would go to an abode, to the underworld, to the place of the dead. And this place was considered down under the earth, at least conceptually. And the Bible deals with this kind of idea in a couple of places. In Philippians 2, when it's talking about the glories of the Lord, and it says, all tongues on earth and even the ones under the earth will declare God's praise. In Revelation 5, they're looking for someone who can open the scroll And no one was found on earth or under the earth. These expressions are talking about people who are living and who are dead. There are those who are living on earth and those who are under the earth. And in our Acts passage, Peter quotes Psalm 16, and then he says this about Jesus. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God had raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses on it. Peter points out that David is still dead. David hasn't come back to life. You could even visit David's tomb in Jerusalem. In their day, Herod actually upgraded the tomb and put a marble monument there. It was probably near the Pool of Siloam. And I think Herod was probably feeling a bit guilty because he tried to raid the tomb earlier and two people died in the skirmish, so he might have upgraded it out of guilt. And Peter's point is that Jesus was... was, And and Peter doesn't say, you can also go visit Jesus' tomb. He can't. Because even though that Jesus was killed and buried about two months before, you can't visit his tomb. Jesus is no longer buried there because he's not left to where the dead go. God did not abandon him to that realm, but he came back to the realm of the living. Jesus said that like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, he too was going to be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. In John's Gospel, When Jesus rose from the dead and seen Mary in the dawn light, he tells her, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. It is the ascension that marks the formal return to the Son of Heaven, not any time before. So Jesus follows the path, the whole path of human experience from birth to death and beyond the grave. And so then there is the theological elephant text in the room, 
where Jesus tells the guy on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. What's with that? I used to think that was the line, the knockdown argument to say that Jesus didn't go to the realm of the dead. But I think the Acts 2 passage is clearer than this passage. And to start off, whatever we make of these two texts, we must remember Luke wrote both, but also so did the Holy Spirit. And so whatever message they're trying to convey, it needs to be a cohesive unit. And there are a lot of rabbit holes here, but I think Jesus' use of the word today with salva- in connection to salvation in the Gospel of Luke is more about how salvation is available immediately. I think there's a sense that today isn't simply a 24-hour time, but an ongoing present. Kind of like how in Hebrews 3 and 4, the word today is used as a present period when people can repent. And there's also a technical discussion of where you put the comma in the line it might be possible to put the line, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. But I'm happy to chat more about this afterwards if you want. I think it is good news for us that Jesus went all the way through death, for by faith we Christians are linked with him now. Our Lord satisfied every condition of being human for us and for our salvation. His body was laid in a grave. His soul passed the place where souls go. He has won for us God and satisfied every condition of human existence. We cannot be where he has not been. He bore our nature as living. He bore our nature as dead. God knows firsthand the whole human experience from life to death to life again, and he's willing to take us through it. Christians have this hope, this looking ahead, this looking beyond death with confidence as Jesus has forgiven our sins and walked through death to lead us home. So if you don't have this hope, Do what Peter says to his audience. Repent. If you don't follow or know Jesus as your King and Saviour, you need to change your ways. Change your mind about who Jesus is. Don't just see him as a miracle worker. He didn't just die a painful and shameful death. He beat death. He went to where we all will go so that he can take us through it. If you are not with Jesus in life, he will not be with you in death. And he's the only one who knows the way out. The way out of that place that we don't talk about. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, death itself was altered. And now, says Athanasius, we no longer die as those condemned, but as those who will arise. It was the Christians who flirted with death too much back then in the Roman Empire. In the Roman world, you would bury the dead far away from the city so the living wouldn't be contaminated by them. But it was the Christians who placed the dead in the middle of their worship gatherings. Think about all the catacombs 
and the grave sites that are right next to churches. Christians would worship next to the dead for they had hope that the dead would not stay where they are. They kept them close by. Athanasius compared the Christian martyrs with children who play with lions. He said, If you see children playing with a lion, don't you know that the lion must be either dead or completely powerless? In the same way, when you see Christ believers playing with death and despising it, there can be no doubt that death has been destroyed by Christ and that its corruption has been dissolved and brought to an end. Christianity is based on the historical fact that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He really was crucified and died and descended to the realm of the dead, but God did not abandon him there. Jesus came back. On the cross, Jesus cried out that God had forsaken him. On the cross, Jesus was taking the punishment of sins for the whole world, and because he did that, we can be forgiven. On the cross, everything turned upside down. Where people saw the crucifixion of Jesus as a defeat, the Christian seed as a victory. Where some see an end, we see a new beginning. Death is serious, but it's not as serious as life. The truth is, we are all going to die, whether we talk about it or not. But because of Jesus, we can have an unflinching acceptance of human mortality but also a straightforward confidence in the ultimate triumph of life that has already happened in the person of Jesus. When I was in my late teens, early 20s, I read this fictional story, but Byzantium, by this guy called Stephen Lawhead. It's about this monk. He gets selected to give a copy of the Bible to the emperor, but he gets kidnapped along the way by Vikings. These Vikings in turn want to go to uh, Constantinople and raid it. Uh, and they end up getting sent on a mission by the emperor and then they get captured and tortured and, walk in, and work in a gold mine. And along all the way, the main character, the monk, Aiden, he uncovers some conspiracy, finds who he thinks is the bad guy, and he ends up taking justice in his own hands and killing him, only to find out the emperor was the bad guy and he's just given him a fall guy. Anyway, at the end of the book, Aidan is back at his monastery and he is disillusioned with his faith because of all the pain and suffering and injustice that he has experienced. And then his friends, the Vikings, they turn up again asking for him because they want him to go to their land and plant a church for him. And this is too hard for Aidan to believe. After all that they had seen and shared, why would the Vikings believe in this God? And his Viking friend replies, My people pray to many gods who neither hear nor care. But I remember the day you told me about Jesus, who came to live among the fisher folk and was nailed to a tree and hung up to die. And I remember thinking, This hanging God is unlike any of the others. This God suffers too, just like his people. I remember also that you told me he was a God of love and not revenge so that anyone who calls on his name can join him in his great feasting hall. I ask you now, does Odin do this for those who worship him? Does Thor suffer with us? Is that not good news? This response caused the main character internal struggle. 
And for the next few pages, he talks to himself and wonders, after all their shared experience, why does the Viking want to embrace the faith while he wants to walk away from it? And near the end, he says this to himself. Did you believe that God would shield you forever from hurt and pain of this sin-riven world? That you would be spared the injustice and strife over where, uh, uh, where others are forced to endure? That disease would no longer afflict you? That you would live forever untouched by the tribulations of common humanity? Fool! All these things Christ suffered and more. Aiden, you have been blind. You have beheld the truth, stared long upon it, yet failed to perceive so much as the smallest glimpse of all that was shown you. Sure, this is the heart of the great mystery, that God became man, shouldering the weight of suffering, so that on the final day none could say, who are you to judge the world? What do you know of injustice? What do you know of torture, sickness, and poverty? How dare you call yourself a righteous God? What do you know of death? He knows, Aidan. He knows. Our God suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended to the dead. He knows. He knows what it's like, and he can guide us through it. I'll pray. Almighty God, you have given your only son to be for us both a sacrifice for sin and also an example of godly life. Give us grace that we may always thankfully receive the benefits of his sacrifice and also daily endeavor to follow the blessed step of his most holy life. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.